I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travailed together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Uh, Lord God, as we open your word together this morning, I pray um, that we could hear your words, if, even if they are very familiar to us, uh, in a new and fresh way. I ask that for myself, that we could encounter you um, in your word, where you promise to meet us and speak to us and show us who you are. And I ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Welcome again to St. Bart's. My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. Um, our rector, Dave Larley, is on uh, sabbatical and will be back um, towards the end of August. So continue to pray for him and his family as they're away and resting and uh, being renewed in their calling and ministry. Um, we're looking at Romans chapter 8. Uh, we were there last week. And we're going to look at these verses today. Um, a few years ago, our family uh, traveled to northern New Mexico, and we visited the Royal Gorge. I don't know if you've ever seen the Royal Gorge. Um, it's a pretty astonishing thing, because you're in the hills, and it's flat, and then there, the earth just opens up and just sort of bottoms out. <laughs> and it's so far down. And we were... We drove over the bridge, we could kind of get a sense of how far down it was, but then when we got out of our car and walked on the bridge, my daughter, my older daughter Ellie, walked to the edge of it and looked, and she got so freaked out that she just laid down flat on the sidewalk, <laughs> just completely flat out. Uh, she was completely overwhelmed. She'd never seen anything like that. I kind of felt, you feel that thing in your stomach where you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> the ground is not solid enough for what's happening here. And sometimes uh, I think of Romans 8 like a chapter like that. If you just read it and take it on its own terms, it just kind of is disorienting and sort of lays you out because the things that Paul is saying here are just absolutely astonishing. And as a preacher, it's hard to feel like that you can communicate them um, because there's such a depth and a profundity to what he's saying um, about God, about who we are in Christ, about the spirit within us. And the chapter begins with that famous opening that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That alone is an astonishing, stomach-dropping truth. That if we've been united to Christ in faith, there is no condemnation. Well, I lose sight of that all the time. I'm living as if, and I know in pastoral conversations that many of us live as if there is condemnation, that there's still that voice within that 
we're condemned or that we're shameful or whatever it is, but Paul is saying, no, that doesn't exist anymore. And that's just verse one. (laughs) And each verse after the other just stacks on top of each other over and over and over again. And there are these precious promises of security and assurance and life of God. And last week we see that he says this other astonishing thing, that the very spirit of God, the spirit of Christ who raised him from the dead is the spirit that has taken up settled residence within us. And that the spirit lives inside of us, the spirit of resurrection and life. And that God through his spirit attests to us that we really are, truly are, without a doubt, his children. Not just saved people, not just people he's okay with. He just cleared the deck so that we could get back to neutral. But that he's raised the stakes so high that he calls us his children. And that he's given us a promise of his inheritance. These truths are astonishing. And it's easy to maybe think Like, oh, Paul, what a wonderful bit of spiritual hyperbole. (laughs) Aren't you exaggerating? Can any of this actually be true? And maybe we can find ourselves so overwhelmed by these truths that we don't think they're true at all. And I think that sets us up for our verses today because in a way what Paul does is anticipates that question and he goes to probably the hardest question of all, which is the question of suffering. What about suffering? If these things are true, then how do we explain the world as it is, the world that we live in, where we suffer? And so he's going to talk about that. And the way he's going to talk about it, I think, is very unexpected, is that he's going to situate our suffering within a larger framework, not as a way to explain it away, but as a way to expand or broaden our horizon an understanding of it. What does he say in verse 18? He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I would call this a subtle bit of spiritual psychology because what he's asking us to do is to think about our suffering within a larger framework. As I said last week, Paul is a realist. He doesn't um, take human nature for granted. <laughs> or that we're all perfect and everything is sunshine and roses, even after we are in Christ. There's still the overlap of the old age of the flesh and the new age of the spirit, and that conflict happens within us. So what Paul says here is not a promise or a way around suffering, but a way through it. He's saying that there is no kind of life in this world that is not touched by suffering but that that suffering has to be reckoned or considered against the backdrop of the promise of future glory. And he says that we can gain comfort in the present from the promise of the future glory. And what he's doing here is he's expanding on the idea of inheritance. That if we have the spirit within us who's taken settled residence within us, we have the guarantee or what he calls here the first fruits of our inheritance. And that we can taste a little bit now of what is to come. We get a little bit right now. And what he's saying is we can consider or reckon or account for the reality that is to come by anticipating what you might more literally translate as an apocalypse of glory. (laughs) 
there is an apocalypse of glory coming, an unveiling of glory, that if you saw it now, you would say it doesn't even compare. It so surpasses whatever it is that our present suffering is now. So that means we have to weigh in the spirit and in community what we experience now against what we anticipate in hope. We don't know exactly what it is. That's the nature of hope. That's his big point at the end. If you knew exactly what it was, it wouldn't be hope. If you already had it, you don't hope for things you already have. You hope for things that you anticipate. So we are so often, I think, in danger of losing this vision this horizon of hope that he lays before us, this promise of an apocalypse of glory, we are often uh, in danger of losing it because we lower our gaze to a lesser horizon. And that horizon is usually ourselves or what human power can accomplish on its own terms. So we place our hope in human progress or technology or human ingenuity And what we end up believing is the oldest lie of all, which is that we are the solution to our problems. (laughs) And this is why um, utopian visions can be so dangerous. Because it's this idea that we can build the future on our own terms, and that we will bring about the apocalypse of glory without God, without his spirit, without his redemption. But there are two errors, I think. I think sometimes... We can buy into our vision of progress that we're working towards, and we've sort of left God to the side of. But there's also the temptation of despair, the dystopian despair, that nothing will ever get better, that it's just doom and gloom all the time. The great theologian Thomas Aquinas, in talking about hope, argues that there are two ways to sin against hope. One is presumption and the other is despair. Presumption is the belief that you know exactly how it's gonna play out. The belief that you know exactly what God is up to and how he's gonna do it and what timeline he's gonna do it on. That's presumption. We don't know. But despair is another sin against hope because that's believing as if God isn't going to do what he's promised to do. Paul is offering something different. Christian hope is hope in a deliverance that comes from outside ourselves, from God. Christian hope is hope in the midst of pain and suffering. And the image that Paul gives us to illustrate this is the image of a woman groaning and travailing in the pain of labor, which is an interesting image on its own. But what's fascinating is who or what is groaning. It's not just us, it's all of creation. Creation groans. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That pain of labor is a real pain. It's a real suffering. It's a real travail. But what Paul is saying is that that travail is in hope of the birth of something new. That through that groaning, through that suffering, something will be delivered into the world. And what is that? It's new creation. And what is astonishing 
about what Paul is saying is that salvation is not just for us. It's for everything God has made. God's determination is to do for creation and for us what he did for his son, which is to raise it up out of death into life. We sang it this morning, you make all things new. The promise is not, I'll make all new things. It's, I will make all things new. What is will be made new. That's us. That's creation. And what Paul is saying is to reckon or to consider our suffering within the framework where we see that it's not just our salvation that's at stake, but the salvation of all that God has made. And that what creation is longing for is the revelation of the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's a lot of words that get slammed together. (laughs) But basically, that in the salvation of God's children is the salvation of God's creation as well. And that future glory is not just us dying and going to heaven, but God resurrecting, God bringing about new creation. So what is the glorious liberty of the children of God? We don't have it fully now, but we have a taste of it. We experience something of it now. And part of that freedom is the freedom of no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the freedom that comes from having the assurance that we are children of God, that the Spirit cries within us, Abba, Father. It is the freedom that comes from hope. We talked about this last week. If you know an inheritance is coming, you can live with a certain amount of freedom. You can live with a certain amount of boldness, not recklessness, but boldness, because you know that things are taken care of. That's the taste of the freedom, the glorious liberty of the children of God. But we groan too, and that's what Paul says next. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There is all of the pain and agony and difficulty and struggle of the Christian life right there because we really have God's Spirit, but what the Spirit is doing is groaning. It's not just us that's groaning, it's the Spirit who's groaning because God longs for this redemption as well. But we have the first fruits, we have the first taste. So it's this thing that we call the now and not yet. We have some of it now, but it's not all the way here. And so we hope. That's why the image of the woman in labor is such a powerful image. Because the pain of labor is real. So I'm told. And so I've seen. I've not experienced it personally, but I've seen it. And it's real. And Jesus says the same thing to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. In John, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. 
the travail of labor and suffering of childbirth vanishes when the new thing, the new child is born. When creation gives birth, when we give birth to that new creation through the power of God's spirit, that's the apocalypse of glory, the unveiling. The drama of the Christian life The drama of this now and not yet plays out within the theater of creation, but it also plays out within ourselves. And this is where Paul goes next week. There are groanings that are beyond language. And when we don't know how to pray, that's what the Spirit is doing within us. And what God wants to bring about is the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of creation. So again, I want to reiterate this, that salvation is not an escape from the created material world, but the full redemption, the promised resurrection, and recreation of the world. God is not trying to get rid of creation. He's trying to redeem it along with us. He's not going to throw away creation like a dirty diaper. I call that dirty diaper theology. That God's just waiting for the diaper to be done, wrap it up, throw it away, let's move on. No, I make all things new. I am making all things new. Paul is so uh, exuberant in these verses that what he says about creation, in our translation, is that it waits with eager longing. It could really, it's really more like with eager expectation, it expectantly waits. (laughs) He uses all the words. With eager expectation, expectantly waits. Do you get it? There's expectation and there's eagerness that God will do what he's promised. There's hope. I want you to look at verse 20 as we close talking about hope. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Uh, If I ever start that sad dad rock band that I'm always threatening to start, our uh, first album might be called Subjected to Futility. That's a good dad rock album, right? Um, that's life in the created order, subjected to, fut- to futility. But what's astonishing here is that Paul doesn't say who did the subjecting. And there's a big debate about it, but most people agree that what Paul is saying here is that when the creation fell, when humanity sinned, is that God subjected creation to a kind of futility in expectation of hope of what he was going to do and how he was going to redeem the world. This is what's called, and I'm going to use a fancy word, a pedagogical understanding of God's work, meaning pedagogy is like a theory of education. God is teaching us. God is teaching creation that he has this long time horizon, that he's patient. We're not very patient, but God is very patient. And he's letting things play out to bring about the fullness. This understanding, this pedagogical understanding, is that in God's economy, the subjection of creation and suffering itself can be, can be a means by which God draws us to himself. It's not always the case. And not all suffering can be easily wrapped up in a bowl and just say, wait, for God will show you. We may not see it until we pass through that veil. We may not. I 
don't want to overpromise on that. And in my own life, I've seen it. Not everything gets wrapped up in a bow in the midst of it. It can be a hard truth to accept that. We want, I want things to be wrapped up in an ice bowl. I want the explanation. I want to understand. But it also means we don't have to pretend like we have to wave away suffering. We can sit with it. We can be in it. We can groan together. We can lament. That's, there's hope in groaning. <laughs> That's part of what Paul is saying. Because the groaning is not an end in itself. It's a labor. It's bringing about a new birth, a new creation. So the pain is real, but it can also be true that the pain is not the whole story. And it can also be true that pain is certainly not the end of the story. But we have to do the reckoning that he's talking about. Consider that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the coming apocalypse of glory. And this always brings us back to the nature of what we hope for. He subjected it in futility in hope. What? For hope for what? For the revelation of the glorious freedom, liberty of the children of God. The fullness of redemption, the full and final deliverance from bondage within ourselves and creation's bondage to decay. That's also a good album title, Bondage to Decay. You can have that one for free. But we have to be in Christ, and that happens through faith. We put our faith in the one who endured suffering for us. And that is as much of an answer as Christianity gives to the question of suffering. If you want to know why we suffer and why God invites why we live in a creation where that has happened and where God lets it persist, I don't have a full and final answer for you. I don't. And anybody who says they do is lying because we don't have a full and final answer. But we do have a crucified Savior. We do have a God who became flesh and dwelt among us and who was tempted in every way that we were, yet did not sin, who for the joy set before him, despised the shame of the cross. And that on that cross, as he paid for our sin, as he put the powers and principalities that subject us to open shame, he achieved a victory for us. And the resurrection is the ceiling of that victory, that what happened on the cross was real. That what happened on the cross is not just a nice story that we tell ourselves, but not just a good example for us to follow, like you need to go suffer like Jesus. That's part of it. But it's actually what achieves this vision that Paul is setting before us, is that he groaned. He groaned under the weight of the worst that humanity could offer, and he took it upon himself. And he moved through it, and came out the other side. And that promise of resurrection is what we're hoping for, that God will do for us what he did for Jesus, and that God will do for creation what he did for Jesus. That creation will be raised up out of its suffering, its bondage, its decay, into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. That's what Christian hope sets its eyes on. 
and where Paul ends is so important. If we saw it now, it wouldn't be hope. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let us pray. Lord God, um, I confess once again that I'm certainly not sufficient for these truths. Um, So I simply ask that by your spirit, you would work within us um, an understanding and an assurance and a hope that these things are true. And that if we're not all the the way there with hope, that we could at least um, lift our eyes to you, Lord Jesus, who endured the groaning, the suffering, the shame for the joy set before you of saving us, of saving your precious creation. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people, uh, a church that is known for hope. We acknowledge, Lord, there's so much hopelessness in the world right now and that it touches us, touches me sometimes. I feel hopeless sometimes. Help us to wait with patience for the hope that you've promised us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.